Hi, my name is Mandy Griffin. And I'm Katie Swalwell. And this is Our Dirty Laundry. A podcast about white women making a mess of things. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. We are going to do a great interview today and you're going to love it. I love these interviews. They're so fun. I do too. I was listening back to this one and I thought, oh my gosh, these are, as much as I love learning about the history and you and I sharing it with each other, I mean that, I definitely love that. These interviews have just been such a pleasant surprise and I've been so inspired and the same, it was true for Sally Rush Wagner and the same is true for our guests today that I think people might not know much about the movement that they're a part of or about Iowa State University where they were students at all. But the stories they have to share, I think, will really resonate with people. And it's certainly not unique to that campus or that institution. And I just really, I think we could have talked to them for like six more hours. Oh, yeah, for sure. I was like, this could go on and on and on. It was great. Well, our guests yeah. um, that you're about to listen to our interview are Alan Nosworthy and Wesley Harris. Um, Alan Nosworthy was a, a student at Iowa State, a master's student in writing um, with a specialty in poetry back in the 90s. And Wesley Harris just graduated with his PhD this year in higher education in the School of Education at Iowa State. And there are two generations of this student movement called the September 29th movement that their primary objective, well, I shouldn't even say their primary objective because they're really clear that it's like a multi-pronged movement, but um, what launched it was this essay written by a student, Meron Wanderwissen, who we will link to her essay. And I will also link to a video of her presenting last year on campus, her take on this history. We actually invited her to come on and, and she wasn't able to make it. Um, but she's just a powerhouse. And so I, I recommend if people are really digging the, these interviews that you go to our blog at www, which stands for World Wide Web dot <laughs> our dirty laundry podcast dot com. And, yes, and if we you have are a blog on there the where Instagrams. I just go a little. Yeah. Yes. This is good. If you're on the Instagrams, we will also post on there. So join us at yes, our dirty it, laundry podcast there too. It's links, links, links galore. And mm-hmm. we really think that this is a, a rabbit hole that you could dive into and get a lot out of. So it's a student movement that initially got sparked by questioning the naming of a building on campus. And eventually other things get named after this woman too, Carrie Chapman Cat. And if you haven't mm-hmm. listened to our previous episode, she was the suffrage leader who took the torch from Susan B. Anthony, uh, Susan B. Shitty Anthony and <laughs> Carrie Chapman Cat really continues the suffrage movement in terms of white women taking over, narrowing the focus, refusing to be in solidarity across other issues that matter to women of color, using white supremacist rhetoric and logics to convince white people to support women's suffrage and and supporting educated suffrage, which is this idea that you know, people who are poor, immigrants, um, people who'd been enslaved, people um, who are native or indigenous, like none of those people deserve to vote. And really, it's just like formally educated, wealthy 
white people that we can trust with suffrage. So that's gross and horrible. And if you want to hear more about that, we dished a lot about that in our previous episode, Voting Rights, Voting Wrongs, I think part four. How many yeah. parts did we get to? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah, four. <laughs> what What do you want people to know? Maybe I feel like I'm in this pretty deep because I actually work at Iowa State. Wesley was one of my students and I, I've been in this rabbit hole just personally for a while around Carrie Chapman Cat. So I'm really curious what stood out for you or what was, you know, new or lingering since we've interviewed Alan and Wesley. The thing that I thought was most impressive, there's so many impressive things, but the thing that I've really been um, thinking about since the interview is that it really is applicable. The lessons they talk about, the values they talk about are so applicable to a wide range of activism and exactly what we've been talking about beyond just the movement that they started and were involved in. Um, there's so many interesting things about their particular movement. And I think people mm -hmm. should definitely look into it um, and get more on that background. But beyond that, the idea of a decentralized mm -hmm. leadership I really loved, I wrote down a couple of things that Alan said, but he may have been quoting something I can't remember when he said, when everyone serves, then everyone leads and, mm -hmm. or something along those lines. And mm -hmm. that really struck me as something um, that was very important because we've been talking about that, just the idea of like getting everyone's input and not mm -hmm. having just one person who thinks they're in charge. And we really talked about that in the last episode where mm -hmm. Susan B went super wrong thinking that there really needed to be one leader and somebody that everybody was venerating and following and blah, <laughs> and, blah, and blah, just, blah, blah. It happened to be her. I mean, funny yeah, how yeah. that happens. Yeah, I, yeah, that really struck me too. I think he was quoting the SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. That was a really powerful organization during the like kind of peak of the civil rights movement in the 50s and the mm -hmm. 60s. Uh, that really struck me too. It, it also really reminds me of what we learned about the Haudenosaunee women and the way that their kind of political power operated and this idea mm -hmm. of like deliberation and coming to consensus and everyone getting to have a, a voice and being heard out. Like it's just such a different way to operate than to have a really rigid hierarchy. Um, you know, I, I, I was really struck by that too, for sure. Um, one thing I, I remember wanting to point out to folks because we mentioned it in the podcast towards the end and we also mentioned it last week in the episode, but we talk a little bit about Jack Trice. And mm -hmm. for some of you who are sports fans, you might know that Iowa State's football stadium is named after Jack Trice. And we don't really get into the the super details of it in this episode, but it's useful to know that he was um, the first black football player for Iowa State, I think, in the early 30s, the late 20s. I'd have to go back and check the exact date. But it was at, at a time when college sports were were really segregated and when teams would play each other, especially like Northern teams would play Southern teams that the white players were especially vicious and really targeted black players and refs looked mm. the other way. Coaches looked the other way. Um, when teams would travel, black players couldn't stay in the same hotels. They couldn't eat at the same restaurants. And, and there is this legacy of black players being targeted and being injured on purpose. There's, many examples of that. And Jack Trice is kind of a famous one because 
from the injuries he sustained at a game actually in Minnesota. So it was two Northern teams playing. He ended up dying from his injuries. And so for decades, <sighs> students were trying to get the university to name the stadium after him. And you'll see how that story converges with the story of, of Carrie Chapman cat and the September 29th movement. So I I'm just like endlessly fascinated and furious about this history. And, and I think really this part of our learning has been about the politics of history, like who gets to tell the story, how, Mm -hmm. who are the cast of characters? What roles do they play that there's, that's not a given. And there's not like one, like, you know, set way that it has to be. Ideally we're being as inclusive and objective and as accurate as possible. But I think part of that means making sure that the people who want to justify the status quo that involves domination and oppression don't always get to be the ones who tell the stories. Like Mm -hmm. we know how that's going to end up. So I, I'm just really grateful that Wesley and Alan wanted to talk with us and that we've helped in some tiny way, make sure that their stories don't get lost and that what they're working on and what they're doing is lifted up because it's incredible what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really great conversation. I was very honored to talk to both of them and get that time from them to hear their stories. So we hope that you guys enjoy it as much as we did. Yay. Here you go. Happy listening. Well, we're so, so, so excited to talk with you both today. Mandy and I just recorded yesterday the episode that got us up to the 19th amendment in the history that we're digging into of how white women just, um, were really shitty throughout the suffrage movement in many, many different ways. And we got um, through Susan B. Anthony and then her protege, Carrie Chapman Catt, and tried to lay the groundwork for this interview. So for listeners who haven't heard that backstory, we really encourage everybody to go listen to what we dug into a little bit just to to give people some more information about who Carrie Chapman Cat was. Um, I, I'm hoping, Wesley and Ellen, that both of you today will be able to share a little bit more about, you know, what, why changing the name of Cat Hall and the Cat Center for Women in Politics is so important. I mean, I think that's the crux of our conversation. We have a lot more to ask you about. Um, but that's really the the lead into this episode today is we've laid the foundation for why um why cat's involvement in in white supremacy is very clear and we talked a little bit about Marone Wandwosen's article that she wrote in a student paper at Iowa State in 1995 that uh, alerted the campus community to cat's um, positions and writing. And then we alerted everyone to letters to the editor this last summer that Celia Naylor and Marone Wandwilson wrote that were just, that just was like an on fire letter to the editor. So we've, it, we've given people a clue that there's this longer history trying to change the name of Cat Hall and that the student organization and movement behind it, the September 29th movement, that that's just a piece of the work that that movement was doing. Um, So we think it's like a nice segue to talk to you all today. Um, Mandy, anything you want to add before we introduce our wonderful guests today? No, I'm excited to learn more about it. I think I tell Katie every episode we do how embarrassed I am that I don't know more of this history, but I think that's part of why we're doing this because we just assume most people don't know a lot of this history. So it's great, I think, to dig deeper into it and I'm excited to hear it. But yeah, let's introduce our guests. 
So Yay. glad to have them. Well, with us today is uh, Alan Noseworthy and Wesley Harris. They are, I can now say, Wesley, two Iowa State alums, since Wesley just defended his dissertation and is now Dr. Wesley Harris and Dr. Alan Noseworthy. <laughs> and so do we... Do you want to shout out a little bit? I, I always hesitate to introduce people for themselves. Like, what would you like our audience to know about you both? Alan, why don't you go first? I would like your audience to know that I'm not a doctor of anything. <laughs> Sorry. I this so is why I is, don't. But I do have a, I, I have a master's degree in English that I got from Iowa State University. And my undergrad was done at SUNY Oswego, where I majored in philosophy and and do you teach at a university? Do you teach English? Am I wrong about that? I do. I, okay. I do. I, I currently teach at Palm Beach State College. It's located in, in South Florida. Thank you. And Wesley, how do you want to introduce yourself? What do you want listeners to know about you? Yes, now that you've um, introduced me as Dr. Wesley Harris, mm-hmm. I'm Wesley Harris Jr., Originally from North Carolina, as Dr. Swalwell, as Katie said, I just defended my dissertation towards the end of January, uh, came to Iowa State from North Carolina to get a PhD and quickly found myself involved in some student activism in 2015 when I arrived uh, as we were in the kind of caucus lead up season um, with our former president. Um as a candidate at that point, and as someone who cares about history, who wanted to know where I was located, I started looking into student movements and equity-related practices at the institution historically and came across September 29th movement. And that kind of is how I learned about Allen long before I ever you know, had the privilege of having conversations and being in community with him and others that were involved. So maybe share a little bit about stumbling across the September 29th movement, the 929 movement. What did you learn at first and and how did you connect with these activists from the 90s? Yeah, so in the fall of 2015, um, my family and I relocated to Iowa that, that, that previous summer. And if we know about 2015, it was a couple weeks after Dylan Roof uh, walked into a Bible study at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and slaughtered um, parishioners there. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I moved from the South where, you know, we we often have this North-South dichotomy that we talk about. I thought I was, you know, escaping to the North. You know, I knew very, very little about Iowa. And I noticed that on day one of living here, when I was returning the U-Haul truck, a huge pickup truck on the corner of 13th and Grand in Ames at stoplight had this huge Confederate flag on a flagpole on the back of the truck. And it kind of baffled me because I'm like, I'm in Iowa. Iowa was, I thought, a a free state. You know, it wasn't part of the Confederacy. Like, do you know where you are? Um, And wait, do I know where I am um, if this is what I'm seeing? So anyway, that was like my intro to Iowa. And then Sorry, fast- apologies to Iowa, <laughs> Wesley. Serious Jeez. apologies from Iowa. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So fast forward, kind of the first few weeks of class, Iowa State University was playing against the University of Iowa in the football game called the Cyhawk 
game after their two mascots. A group of students, unbeknownst to me, had organized the silent protest because then candidate Trump was going to be um, making an appearance at a rally in one of the parking lots. And so they made signs. They showed up, uh, stood silently with their signs. They were not well received Mm -hmm. by folks who were there for the rally or folks who were there tailgating. Um, Folks had their faces grabbed, signs torn and things of that sort, lots of disparaging things yelled out at them, go back to your country, get out of here, you know, all of those, all the things we could imagine. And so that led to some conversations across campus, in classes, here within the School of Ed. And the university president took a few days to respond, and the response was pretty piss poor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started connecting with people to ask questions of like, hey, can someone connect me with the folks who were who organized this um, march or this silent protest? We created a group called Lucha Leaders United for Change. And as I was trying to find previous campus climate surveys, previous diversity statements and things of that sort, I kind of went down lots of rabbit holes in the interwebs and <laughs> came across this obscure mention of a group called the September 29th movement. And I found a like Rio Cities 1990s website that was <laughs> amazing that it still existed. And I was like, I need to try to, you know, screenshot as many of these pages as I can, print out as much as I can, because who knows how long this thing will continue <laughs> to exist. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I came up came about it. And then fast forward two years, looking into this, there was a Black alumni panel that was organized by the lectures program here at Iowa State. And Maron Woonwoozen was one of the folks who was supposed to be on the panel. And unfortunately, because of various circumstances, she wasn't able to be. But Celia Naylor, who was a former um, director or coordinator of the Sloss Center here at Iowa State was on the panel and spoke very candidly about not thinking she'd ever step foot on this campus again because of the treatment that the students and others in the movement had received and because of Iowa State's uh, lack of remorse. Um, And she had moved on to bigger and better things. I had the opportunity as president, I think I was president of BGSA, the Black Graduate Student Association at that time, and had got a chance to go to dinner. with Celia and the other um, Black alumni who were on that panel. And I just went in like, hey, I've been finding out about, <laughs> I've read about you. I've read some of the things that you've written um, that you tried to bring attention to Kat and you know her uh, white supremacy and xenophobia and all of these things. Would you, are you still in contact with folks? Would you be willing to connect me? Um, all of those types of things. and. Fortunately, we've we stayed connected and I eventually was connected with Marone and more recently this past summer connected with Alan and other folks in the movement. That's great. I'm, I'm imagining Celia, uh, you coming to her and saying, I've seen your website <laughs> from the 1990s. I printed off the whole website and maybe she like inching towards the door a little bit. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I mean, that is just incredible. And like the universe sort of wanting the two of you to meet, I think, to to bring all of those things together is really 
like a fascinating story that gives me goosebumps. Alan, maybe that's a great segue for you. Then what brought you to Iowa state, you know, long before Wesley, you know, the two of you only meeting fairly recently, but what brought you there in, in the nineties? I was, I was looking for a place to, to study writing, to write, uh, to write poetry specifically. And Iowa state university offered a newer writing program. I figured that Iowa State University gave me the chance to do my own thing and embrace that because they were. Uh, Long story short, I was looking for a place that didn't have decades and decades and decades of writing tradition. I wanted a place where no one was going to scoff at my very poor attempt to write poetry. And I thought that I was going to write poetry and write poetry and as we all know we make plans and god laughs yeah i think that's an interesting point that you bring up that we have these ideas for what we're going to be doing when we get ourselves into things and then thankfully sometimes the universe has other plans (laughs) um and takes us on a new ride so yeah i think yeah tell us your story of then how you were there just to write your poetry what what took a turn like how did you get introduced to maybe more of the activism okay so now everyone is in for a treat because this is a story i don't tell too often okay and i have to i have to preface it with the following this is a funny story okay here we go <laughs> so so once i i got there and began writing i also felt that student life is always a bastion of writing material. What's going on in the world around you is a great place to get ideas from, thoughts, uh, thoughts about writing topics, especially when it comes to poetry. So I became involved with the BSA. And at the time, that stood for Black Student Alliance. I don't know if that's the same. It is. It is. All right. Look at that. Some tradition. (laughs) Love it. There was a very important meeting taking place in the library because of some student activism that had gone down a year before I arrived. I walked into the library looking for this meeting, and I wasn't the only one in search of said meeting. There was this younger, Ethiopian-featured-looking woman who was also looking for this meeting. And this young lady did not have time for nonsense (laughs) ever. So as I'm walking around the library, she recognized me from previous BSA functions and with hands on both her hips, standing on top of a staircase that I believe led up to the second floor. She looked dead at me with absolute seriousness and said, where's the meeting? Now, I was I was very new to Iowa State and I had no clue where the meeting was. I was lucky I found the library that night (laughs) because because I was, you know, I was was new to Iowa in general. Uh, One thing led to another. And I just said, I'm I'm sorry, are you referring to the to the BSA meeting? And, and she said, yeah, that's the only meeting that's taking place in the library this evening. So like, it's very no bones, like, you know, just cut and dry, 
we have this work that needs to get done. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't be, you know, it should have been clear exactly what room there should have been signed <laughs> in the library. That there was, and I almost felt like I was the one responsible <laughs> because of the way she asked. I, I felt like I dropped the ball, even though I wouldn't even know where to find the ball, much less drop. One. So, so that is, that was my introduction to Marin Juan Wilson. And we, uh, you know, years have now passed and we laugh and laugh and laugh about that story <laughs> at, at this point. But that was the first time I believe we ever spoke at some length to, <laughs> to one another. And it would it wouldn't be much longer after that initial meeting that she came to me with an article that she had written. And she said she found out that I was studying writing and wanted to know my opinion on what she had put together. One thing led to another, and I asked many questions after reading the article, Mm. such as how long did the university know about this before they committed to any action? Why didn't they commit to any action on this previously? And, uh, you know, you can just imagine the inquisition I put her through, but she... (laughs) She was happy to find someone who was interested in this beyond the article itself. The amount of you know, the amount of questions I was asking showed her that. Hmm. And we met up with a number of other uh, people. A significant figure was who was also in the writing program. Is named Milton McGriff. Uh, he he took to her article very quickly and very supportively asking some of the same questions that I was asking in order not to go off on, you know, to avoid too much of a ramble, I will, I'll end there. And then if we have some more follow-up questions, I'll be happy to to guide the discussion regarding. Yeah. I, I mean, I think we are really interested in that, like how, how something does take off and become a movement and, and something I've always admired about September 29th that I've learned through Wesley and the history he's done on it is how intersectional it was really intentionally and um, not just in terms of membership, but in terms of the demands that the organization had and the ways that it was thinking about different issues. As Mandy and I have been learning about the suffrage movement, something we took away was that the white women in leadership positions really narrowed the focus to being just about suffrage and made a lot of really awful compromises to get that done. And a lot of the uh, women of color in particular in the movement were always very intersectional and cross issue and saw lots of issues needing to be addressed at one time and weren't singular in their focus. And and my sense of September 29th is it was the same way, very multi-issue, very intersectional. So can you talk about some of the demands that the students had. And I think because we're talking about suffrage right now, you know, how did Cat Hall and changing the name of Cat Hall become one of the many demands that the group had? One of the questions I asked Marin as we were discussing her article was, what's the graduation and retention rate for African-American students at this school? She wasn't sure. So we did some digging around. That led to additional questions like, why are LGBTA students denied uh, denied insurance if they if they are couples on this campus? Hmm. Why 
are Native American student retention rates and recruitment rates so low in a state that is named using a Native American language? Mm. And on and on and on. One question turned into the next question, turned into the next question. Mm. Because disenfranchisement is disenfranchisement across the board. There are no, there is no separation of mm-hmm. franchisement. If, you know, if one is disenfranchised, all are disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. And that, that was the perspective that we started to grow. We also felt that the naming of Cat Hall without full-fledged knowledge and discussion mm-hmm. of what Carrie Chapman Cat did in her past in order to secure white women the vote mm-hmm. was unacceptable on a campus that claimed to embrace diversity at the level that Martin Jischke, the president of the campus at the time, claimed the campus was doing. Mm-hmm. That wasn't the case at all. Carrie Chapman Cat was just one example of all that was going on. And we decided that changing the name of the building was a first step towards dealing with all of the other ills that needed to be dealt with. But we would not, we would not speak about these things compartmentally. We would speak about them all at once every time we spoke. So if we were talking about changing the name of Carrie Chapman Cat Hall, we were talking about improving the Black Cultural Center. If we were talking about changing the name of Cat Hall. We were talking about improving the LGBTA experience on the campus. We were talking about Cat Hall. We would talk about all that was representative of a disenfranchised environment on ISU's campus. That's how we created what it is you're talking about, this, this very large home for which students who were disenfranchised, quite obviously disenfranchised. This is how we created a home for all of them to to voice their concerns and articulate the details of these concerns too. Uh, One example that, that many folks might not remember is we supported the student group that was against McDonald's being put into the student hall, uh, into the student union that was being revamped at the time. Now, this might sound like a very silly detail to listeners, (laughs) but it was probably a real sticking point for the university. Students were saying, if we're going to redo the uh, dining area for the student union, we want as many healthy choices in the student union as possible. McDonald's just refuses to engage with student health. And I could, you know, we could bring up lots of health issues that McDonald's might not be too interested in engaging. (laughs) But this this student was very clear that McDonald's was not going to be allowed to have a space in this area that was being revamped. And period, the end. They came to us and asked us the September 29th movement for support. And absolutely, we said yes. We would we would certainly support them only because 
it's very clear that a lot of these fast, these fast food institutions cater to people who are uh, in, in economically disenfranchised situations. The food's not healthy, but hey, mm-hmm. it tastes good. This is what I'm going to eat. And next thing you know, years down the line, folks who who are challenged in this way end up with all kinds of um, uh, health situations, diabetes, you name it. So McDonald's did not have a shining track record. And here comes the funny part of the story. Ten years later, they held a rally in front of Beardshire. I forget what the name of the student group was. One of the students who did not agree with having uh, uh, keeping McDonald's out of the out of uh, this newly revamped area. One student came through with a bag of McDonald's cheeseburgers and started throwing the cheeseburgers out to the crowd. So we we all laughed at that because kudos to the folks who did want McDonald's. That was a funny way to, to deal with the situation. <laughs> and then the student rally went on. I was I was asked to speak. I come up to the microphone and I said, if I see any more clowns on this campus, I'm going to be upset. And the crowd looks at me and then they start looking at each other and they, they think, what, what's he talking about? And then I repeat it. If I see any more clowns on this campus, I'm going to be upset. And you hear some murmur in the crowd. I say it one more time and now the crowd is completely silent and they're all thinking Alan Nosworthy has officially lost his mind. <laughs> I say it one more time. If I see any more clowns on this campus, I'm going to be upset. And I turn around and I point to Beardshire and I say, because we've got enough clowns in this building behind me to put Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus out of business for good. The Alan. crowd went absolutely <laughs> nuts. On the spot. That was, that made them feel good about standing in that cold weather and maybe maybe being had by the guy who was throwing burgers out to the crowd. It made them remember why they were there, right? The the administration was constantly making decisions that were not in the best interest of people who are pursuing an education. In other words, the administration was acting like a bunch of clowns that were just out to make money. And this was our opportunity to call them out on Mm-hmm. While their profit margin would have been a lot higher had McDonald's been allowed to stay on the campus. Ultimately, the student outcry was so loud that uh, McDonald's did not end up building at the time. I don't know if they have snuck into that food court since then, mm-hmm. but for a number of years, the students managed to keep them out. Mm-hmm. This was an example of what students can achieve when they all stick together, LGBTA, black students, white students, Native American students, Spanish speaking students, you, you name the group of students. If they all pull together and start moving in the same direction, they can accomplish anything. And that, that situation with McDonald's was just one example of the possibilities. Mm-hmm. That's, that is such a great example. I think of that whole, um, philosophy of power from 
instead of power over just the gathering power from the grassroots, from the, from the entire student body, from whatever kind of group it is that you're working with is just, there's a lot that can be done with that. Um, I also think that that McDonald's story is a great segue into talking to a really important part about your story that we wanted to get to, but first, so I have a couple, a couple questions. One, um, Katie said, we did set this up in our last episode, but just for me and for other people who might not be entirely familiar, um, if one of you wants to kind of address what September 29th stands for, what the significance is of that name of the movement, and then Alan speaking to the um, McDonald's and food connection, we would really love to talk and hear about um, your hunger strike that became part of this movement too. So any of you, Wesley, do you want to talk about 929 and kind of why it got named that and where that background is from? Yeah. So my understanding is um, the publication, the essay that Alan was talking about that Marone had written was called The Cat is Out of the Bag or The Cat's Out of the Bag. Um, was she racist? Racism in the suffrage movement. It was a critique of Carrie Chapman Cat. It was published in Uhuru, uh, which was a newsletter, I think the tagline was a publication for intelligent activism, uh, but it was the newsletter of the Black Student Alliance. And the publication date was, or when Maron wrote the article, it was September 29th, 1995. Okay. Although I think the publication actually says it's the October 1995 issue of the newsletter. Mm -hmm. That was the publication date that later became the name of the movement that we know as the September 29th movement. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for that background, for getting into that. And then, yeah. So do you want to talk a little bit about where all of that fit in with your activism and just the story behind that? So I, I think one really important thing to add in here regarding the September 29th movement is our structure mm -hmm. and our, our structure was we have no structure. Mm -hmm. And Milton could not stand me for this. <laughs> he really felt strongly that there needed to be a president and a vice president and a, uh, you know, a treasurer, so on and so forth. I hedged against that only because it set up whether we wanted to acknowledge it or not. It set up a power structure. Mm -hmm. Right. It's. Like one person's the boss, one person's running things and somebody else has to answer to her and or somebody, you know, people have to answer to him, et cetera, et cetera. Instead, we we came to a compromise and the compromise was structured after uh, the SCLC, mm. where the understanding was everybody can serve so everybody can lead. And that meant everybody's responsibility was just as important as everybody else's. No one person had more authority or, yeah, authority is a good word. No one person had more authority than any other person. And if the media tried to spin things in a different way, we would politely guide them in a different direction, which said, you know, this, this person's responsibilities are, 
are just as important as another person. Well, I, I mean, I think your concerns, Alan, that you said about, you know, the, the way that the media would spin things. But I, I think there's also strategy in having decentralized structure like that in terms of protecting yourselves from attacks and resistance. You know, I know Mandy asked you specifically about the hunger strike, and I really want to hear about that too. But I I wonder if if also you can share some stories about why that was a really rational concern that you all had in terms of the resistance to all sorts of different strategies, including your hunger strike. The, you know, collective leadership kind, it, it keeps everyone together. It, it makes people feel like they are a part of something and what they have to say matters. You have to work at it every day or every time you're together, uh, you know, working on an event or, or, or strategizing only because you're allowing for individuals to express themselves in a forum that we don't see too often in this country. So it was new to everyone who was in the September 29th movement. And there were many times where, you know, we came to a stalemate on an issue and just had to hash it out at a hash things out or plan things out at a later date because we couldn't come to an agreement. And that, that was important. You know, that, that kept us moving towards the moving forward to a, to another day of activism because it was clear that what one person had to say mattered, even if that voice was in a minority, it still deserved thought question discussion without with without this uh, i feel like i'm going into teacher mode and, and <laughs> I, I love it teach. i love it so it's gonna, like a I'm master keep, class i like it i'm gonna keep my, <laughs> I'm gonna keep my thoughts brief here which i have not been doing a good job of so far but <laughs> if if we look at humanity we are very bad at listening to one another when it comes to religion when it comes to economics, when it comes to social issues, when it, we have a very hard time doing that. <clears throat> and sometimes our technology does not enhance it. Sometimes it does. And sometimes, you know, sometimes our technology makes us better at talking to one another. But we, we don't do it well. And models like a collective leadership model that's, that states everybody can serve so everybody can lead. That forces us to listen to one another's thoughts, consider those thoughts, and then find a way to move everyone's thoughts closer to the middle Mm -hmm. or closer to a position of agreement. Mm -hmm. And once a group of people is able to do that, they can come up with the most amazing ideas ever. The September 29th movement was a good example of that. Because we came up with this idea for a teach-in and we managed to get uh, instructors from the university, staff people from the university to speak to students on this one day, to speak to students about a host of issues ranging from student safety to uh, better understanding of LGBTA communities. So our collective leadership model allowed for for many voices 
that that required space on that campus at the time? Probably a good question is just what what's been going on more recently now than Wesley in your involvement with the university and what's the structure of the activism groups on campus right now? And how did you decide to relate that to what you learned from um, the history of the 99 movement? Yeah. So it goes back to, again, like I was a history major in undergrad and specifically took all of the courses that I could at my undergraduate alma mater in relation to uh, black history, African history. And one of the things, again, being located in North Carolina uh, on a campus that's 20 minutes from the campus of North Carolina A&T State University, where four students sparked the sit-in movement on February 1st, 1960. One of the things that I was able to learn growing up in North Carolina with such a strong history of movement building, such a strong history of uh, attempts to build solidarity across uh, people groups, again, across uh, issues, was that this, this leaderless or collective leadership model that Ella Baker brought to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, um, you know, that birthed people that we know like John Lewis, uh, Kwame Ture, AKA Stokely Carmichael, who then gave us the phrase black power, you know, mm-hmm. and led through uh, black Panther party and other black consciousness movements and things of that sort, having studied those things. And then in particular, being in the higher ed program at Iowa state, where I was taking classes, where I was digging deeper into those histories um, while also trying to be a part of a movement that we were building here and coalitions that we were building and reading about September 29th movement and seeing how intersectional they were and how we were struggling with intersectionality in the movements that we were building in 2015 coming forward. It was amazing to me that they were able to do it. We were trying to replicate some of the successes that we had seen in some of these other movements in using the collective leadership model. We incorporated that. We were struggling with it. Uh, We were trying to bring various siloed communities together. We were trying to do some of the activism around racial justice and, you know, gender and sexuality justice and disability justice and, uh, you know, and, 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 and we were struggling because folks had not been doing that work since 929 was successfully able to do it. Folks had gone back into their individual communities and folk and were building uh, around kind of individual issues or individual community issues. So I was struggling and I was really blown away by the fact that they were doing these teachings. They were hosting protests and rallies. You know, Allen engaged the hunger strike. They were building solidarity uh, and coalitions across folks. They brought Angela Davis to campus. They brought you know, had, you know, dozens of NAACP chapters across the country who were supportive of um, changing the name. Um, It was covered in Time Magazine and the LA Times and, you know, Chicago Tribune and, you know, all of these massive media. And the more I dug into the history of the movement, the more I read, I was just blown away by the fact that when I was visiting special collections and archives on campus or just doing general Google searches on university websites, 
I could find almost absolutely no mention mm-hmm. of this movement. And I'm like, I pass this building, you know, all the time. And mm-hmm. I either refer to it as old botany hall or that hall, T-H-A-T-T, um, because <laughs> I generally refuse to speak the name of the white supremacist to give her the honor uh, that comes with having her name on a building that I don't think she deserves to have her name mm-hmm. on because of what it means for people like me and people like this other students and faculty and staff who I've been uh, building community with. What we're doing now as you know, we're making plans to roll out a podcast where we dig deeper into not just the history of the September 29th movement, but we look into and reckon with the history of Iowa State University as a land grant in a state named after, you know, uh, indigenous peoples where there's very, very little mm-hmm. representation of actual indigenous peoples on the campus mm-hmm. and where we are uh, building those communities where uh, Iowa State has mm-hmm. a renaming committee that has been put together. And there's a process that's been playing out since last summer. President Winterstein, after Carlene tweeted about a plaque to W.T. Hornaday, who was another white supremacist affiliated with the institution, who uh, literally put uh, a Congolese man in a zoo as an attraction. After she tweeted out about that, the university sprung into action and within 72 hours had announced that they were uh, putting together a naming committee, uh, that the university was going to be making steps to try to um, recommit to these principles of community that they rolled back out a few years ago, which was baffling to me because Mm -hmm. since 2015, when I got here and found out about 929 and found out about CAT and found out about the building and the movement that they had engaged, every chance I've gotten, I've written about it for class projects. I've spoken about it at the Iowa State Conference on Race and Ethnicity, which just concluded today, or I-Score. Um, I've you know, presented in your teaching and learning Iowa history uh, class and the kind of wrap-up session for that, as well as, you know, using social media and connecting with folks uh, and trying to build this kind of grassroots movement to bring attention and awareness to the fact that the building's still here. Mm-hmm. And former president Stephen Leith, as well as current president Wendy Winterstein, both were really dismissive and have been throughout the time. And they've avoided the conversation. They put together secret committees to talk about it and to talk about um, nine to nine and to talk about individual peoples um, and to try to stifle. And they've enabled a faculty emerita who has engaged in this decades long uh, targeted campaign to try to disparage and get folks removed from school and to intimidate folks, including you, Katie, and me uh, and the, nine, the original members of September 29th movement. Um, And so we're still trying to bring attention to this. We've submitted uh, requests for the name to be changed through the formal process. A couple of days ago, the president um, finally named the folks who would be serving on that committee uh, and also announced that there will be an external consultant uh, historian. We're hoping, hoping that it will be a black radical feminist uh, historian who will be engaged, but I won't hold my breath for that. <laughs> um, 
know, y'all so can't see <laughs> y'all can't see our video, but Alan just started laughing really hard when, <laughs> when Wesley put that hope out into the world. So what what is the what is the pushback? I mean, because as Katie and I have discussed in some of the earlier podcasts, we've found it kind of. Um, I don't know if entertaining is the word to find out what some of the personal stories are behind why people defend some of these. There always seems to be some sort of a, a family story or some personal feud or some, some minor connection that you shouldn't, you wouldn't think would influence history so much. But as I'm thinking about the resistance that this movement has had and the fact that here we are in 2021 and this hall is still named after her in a time when, a lot of those changes have been made for around the country and other institutions. What's the deal? What is, what's the, <laughs> what's the strong, um, do we know, is there a story as to why they're so wedded to the idea of the name of this building? I mean, I think we can speculate. I don't, I don't know that. Go, go ahead, Alan. No, no, go ahead. Wes. Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say we can speculate. I don't know that we will ever know what it is besides like this, as Mike Benitez, who spoke at iScore today, he talked about this aggressive, passive aggressiveness that he <laughs> yes. experienced in moving to Iowa. Uh, you know, there's the Iowa na- niceness, but Katie knows this. I've been referring it to <laughs> Iowa nasty um, because there's this like this passive aggressive. If we don't talk about anything that could be considered uh, tense or if we can avoid conflict and pretend that things are good and all is well, then we don't have to do the work necessary to correct these things. Uh, I think part of it is like cat is white and a woman, right? And there are lots of things historically that we've been socialized to believe about whiteness as a concept and about, um, womanhood and femininity mm-hmm. and I think white women like Kat have been placed on a pedestal and I think that's part of the problem with this kind of people worship where you raise people onto pedestals you know it's the same that our Iowa legislature is pushing back against the 1619 project mm-hmm. and like more accurate more full histories being taught and it's the reason why we are taught that George Washington had these wooden teeth that um, instead of being taught the truth about him, learn that they were like forcibly removing teeth from people's heads, sometimes without any kind of anesthetic uh, mm-hmm. to create the, these false teeth uh, or mm-hmm. dentures or whatever. And so when people bring up this, what Alan and others faced was this, well, why are you focusing all of your attention on this one building that is one of the few that has a woman's name on it, mm-hmm. right? Um, why are, are you going to take down all these other names? You know, and it's the same as Trump and others saying, oh, what are you going to take? You know, you're going to change the name of the Washington Monument or the Jefferson Monument and things of that sort. I think because she is one of the first women to graduate from Iowa State and because she was one of the people involved in helping white women secure suffrage, mm-hmm. I think folks have been taught the same as, you know, Susan B. Anthony and Shaw and Stanton and, you know, the list goes on and on and on mm-hmm. of these white women who were involved in suffrage, but we don't learn about 
um, the Harriet Tubman, who was an abolitionist and a suffragist. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't learn about um, Ida B. Wells. We don't learn about, you know, um, even the last episode, one of the last episodes you all did where Sally uh, Rush Wagner was talking about how, you know, Lakota women and some of their practices and other uh, indigenous women who had, you know, so, uh, who had suffrage in their their sovereign nations. Um, we learn these things from them. We don't talk about those things. And so I think nobody wants to feel like they're tearing down this person that they've put on a pedestal and they don't want to admit that they were wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, we want students to learn and to develop and to apologize, but as institutions and often institutional actors, we don't hold ourselves to the same standard on our on college campuses that we hold students to. Mm-hmm. Um, and we think there's some yeah. money tied to it some kind of way, but always back know. to that. <laughs> you know. yeah. I mean, I when I think about the the link, I mentioned this in the podcast, the previous episode, that there's a link between the work the 929 movement was doing and um like a parallel movement to try to get the football stadium named after Jack Trice and that those streams converged. Alan, I see you laughing too and shaking your head mm-hmm. about that. That it's unbelievable. It's like unbelievable. Do, do you want to tell the, a little bit? Sure. The you know, so I saw our conversation starting to steer itself towards the subject of money, funding, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. And for for quite some time, we were convinced that Botany Hall, Old Bot, to turn around and 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 Kat's name was used to raise that money. Her name was used in in uh, materials and hey, look at us, we are going to name a building after a woman, please donate what you can to help this first for IS, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) So now the university was not very comfortable changing the name after it was used to pull together so much money. Exactly what the backroom chatter would have been on that, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I've never had access to that high level of administrative talk but when it came to the football stadium something very interesting took place there was a student activist from the 60s who called me i cannot remember this gentleman's name we had a very long phone conversation after he introduced himself and he said that he had spent years of his life trying to get the football stadium named after jack trice And he felt very strongly that the September 29th movement might be able to push that rock over the hill. I laughed because I felt that the university was going to do that anyway. And it was a way out Mm. for them. Keep in mind, the statue of Jack Trice was in an obscure area of the campus. It was located close to, almost behind, some bushes on the southwest corner of Beardshire. I think I have that location right. But nonetheless, it was definitely located in a corner. (laughs) Let's just leave it at that. So there was no real uh, outcry to recognize Jack Trice 
until the September 29th movement comes along and says, rename that building, start funding these programs for ESL students at a rate that is going to better retain them, start bringing more programs onto campus that will make the campus welcome to students who are coming from inner city Chicago, black and white, blah, 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 right? We come along with all of these requests and all of a sudden, a year and a half into it, when it's clear we're not going away, you know what? We're going to rename that football state. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. That's, that's, you know what? Good for you. Rename Cat Hall. That was always <laughs> our position on on that but it was it was a uh it was a convenient move for the university to make it look like to give the appearance of an interest in diversity and diverse cultures on the campus if that had been the case Hmm. jack trice stadium would have been named jack trice stadium long before i was born Mm-hmm. So that that's a history that's really in, important to to review and also equally important. There are some sports writers who, who in recent history have given Iowa State University some praise mm-hmm. for naming uh, the football stadium after Jack Trice. This praise is misplaced. Mm-hmm. It the the university would never have even thought about taking on this activity if the September 29th movement had not been calling for other changes on the on the campus. Now, that is not to say the September 29th movement is responsible for the renaming of the football stadium. No, I'm I'm not making that claim at all. And I never will. I was very happy that that, you know, Jack Trice that the decision was made to, to do that. It wasn't a negative decision, but I just don't, mm. I don't want there to be uh, any false tales in history as to what <laughs> brought it about. But I, you know, Ellen, you saying that reminds me, Mandy, of something we talked about uh, yesterday when we were recording, just that people in power don't just wake up one morning and decide to be better people and say, you know what? I was wrong. We really should rename that stadium or, you know what? Maybe we should name this building something different that it's you scratch at the surface and it's it is long generational struggles that had to devote enormous creativity and energy and resources to pressuring and pushing on those people in power to do the right thing. And, you know, it often ends up being an issue of interest convergence even. So just thinking about all the ways that those histories get erased and then the university gets like a great photo op or gets, you know, a feather in its cap that it gets to, um, you know, promote this um, diversity or, you know, attention to honoring black students or whatever that it, it is. And it, it does such an injustice to all of the people who worked so hard to make that happen. Um, I think that's something one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to the two of you today, Wesley and Alan, is to just whatever we can, whatever platforms we have to try to help lift up, document, make visible the work of student, especially student activists. Wesley, you were pointing to this, that like youth activists and student activists that are working to push against institutions that see them as 
their wards or their, you know, that they don't have anything to offer. There's so much incredible activism that's come from young people that has pushed for these changes. So I, I just, I really, really appreciate you all sharing your stories. I I think we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours probably. And I would love to, (laughs) I mean, we should, we should, you know, do another conversation at some time and anything that we can contribute to or help when you're get your podcast started up, we'd love to put that information out there for people to listen to it and everything too. I think maybe we should wrap up considering your time, but going back to the root of what this podcast is about, about and about white women trying to examine our history and where we have fucked things up in the past and how we can stop being shitty now. Give us and the people, like our audience that's listening, your wish list. What would you say to the to the white progressives, the white female progressives specifically? What what can we do to be better? Like what in these student movements and the things that um, in these activist kind of causes, where, where can we do what is best in this situation? One of the things in conversation we were having last night with some other folks involved in 929 that they wanted to communicate is that Mm -hmm. we need folks to be traitors to their race. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking about, Uh, the commitment to whiteness as a concept, um, the harms that are done done through those commitments to whiteness and to white supremacy um, don't just harm people racialized, you know, racially and ethnically minoritized peoples, right? Mm -hmm. They harm white people too, Mm -hmm. people racialized as white too. Mm -hmm. Um, In the way that we buy into those stories of the frailty of white women, uh, the frailty mm-hmm. or the innocence of white women yeah. and things of that sort. And there's enough that's been written out there. You know, if we want to drop some cat quotes, like there are, um, you know, cat was, it's not just the one quote that everybody goes to about white supremacy will be strengthened, not weakness by women's suffrage. But some of the things she said to close out the campaign for the 19th Amendment. And in August of 1920 in particular, as Tennessee was about to (laughs) vote and become the last state to ratify uh, the amendment, there were some accusations of Kat being a supporter of uh, interracial relations, marriage, etc. And Kat said, it's an absolute fabrication that I have at any time advocated intermarriage between the white and Negro races. Furthermore, I believe it to be an absolute crime against nature. So even if her disparaging remarks and the slurs that she used against indigenous peoples, against Mm -hmm. immigrants, primarily from uh, Eastern Europe, uh, who were believed to be less than those that were coming from Western Europe, even if her classist comments about who should have the right to vote and it being white women of some wealth, Mm-hmm. joining white, you know, land owning men and, you know, all of those types of clauses that have been added, even if those are not enough, you know, she was very pointed in her language and never once that I've read did she ever apologize, that she ever show remorse. She did say that, you know, in her in her younger days, she had been 
a regular jingoist kind of backtracking a bit on her xenophobia uh, and particularly in relation to anti-Semitism, she, she backtracked and, you know, made some amends. Um, but I've never read anything and nobody's ever been able to point to point me to anything in all of their critiques of uh, the scholarship that the original 929 members like Alan and others did and the work that, you know, um, I and others have tried to continue in more contemporary times. We need white women to dishonor um, mm-hmm. white women who were not a product of their times because Ida B. Wells lived during her time and other people lived during her time who condemned, Mm -hmm. you know, these white supremacy. And we have to also remember that 1920 is like in the heart, in the heat of, you know, um, red summers and the many, many race massacres where black peoples were slaughtered across the country from Chicago to, you know, many, many other Uh, cities across the state. So lynching was during Kat's time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I can't say that she was directly responsible for some of those lynchings, but her white supremacist language um, was never condemning it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was also in support of white supremacy. And so I think that's enough to disqualify her from having a name on a campus that has principles of community Mm -hmm. that include respect and you know, um, commitments to diversity uh, and inclusion and those types of things. Like it's 2021. So many other campuses have corrected course Mm -hmm. and cities and, you know, other um, entities have corrected course. Um, Cat's not too big for the university to admit that it was right or that it was wrong uh, Mm -hmm. and to do the right thing by changing Mm -hmm. the name of Cat Hall. Among other yeah. things. <laughs> <laughs> well, so thank you. I love thank that. You. I love that advice to to dishonor, you know, that there's a lot of power in that. And to however we can seek to sever ties to the ideas of white womenhood as needing to be protected. So much, so much damage has come from that. So much harm has come from that. Alan, take us home. What what's your wish list in Mandy's words? <laughs> I think there comes a time when people have to recognize that which is a, a that which is right and that which is highly questionable wrong damaging hurtful however we want to put this and i'm going to put this into context when apartheid is is overcome and nelson mandela is elected president of south africa one of the things i really hoped for was that he would lead the charge and build an economy based on South African business that was created by South Africans. So Starbucks wouldn't be invited in. There would be a South African coffee company. Ford would not be invited in. There would be a general South African motors and on and on and on. Now, that was that was a pretty tall order for rather short and skinny Alan Nosworthy to pose <laughs> upon the mighty Nelson Mandela. Who am I to, to make such a, a claim? But the idea would have set South Africa on a on a path of independence that sent a, a, a shot around the world, meaning South Africa was now going to stand on its own two feet 
And it was going to be extremely difficult to do, but it was going to do it with South African feet, not the feet of Mazda and Lincoln and McDonald's and Chick-fil-A and on and on. Mm -hmm. Now, notice here that I'm saying this as an African-American male in 2021. I'm able to look at the situation with some amount of, of uh, diplomacy. This does not mean that I advocate for apartheid. This does not mean that I think Nelson Mandela should have stayed in jail. Not at all. But I'm able to, to look at the entire situation from a perspective that helps build everyone, right? All, all boats float under this scenario. I think people need to be able to look at the naming of Cat Hall the same exact way, regardless of race, regardless of gender. What happened with the naming of that building was wrong, given the statements the university made about diversity, embracing diversity, making Iowa State University a welcome place for diverse populations. To this day, to this day, we still see horrible, horrible recruitment rates for Native American students at Iowa State University. Horrible recruitment rates. Same thing goes for retention and graduation rates. Now, when you name a building after a woman who called Native Americans savages over and over and over again in numerous public speaking environments as well as written environments, how do we circle the square? <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't something that requires us to be of a certain race to understand. It doesn't require a certain gender. It doesn't require a certain sexuality. It requires, it requires a recognition of that which is right and that which is highly questionable, highly uncomfortable, super duper wrong. Mm -hmm. So I'm attempting to, to transcend the question by saying, when it comes to the issue of diversity on Iowa State University's campus, the naming of Cat Hall, and how white women can contribute, I would never claim, I would never claim to tell white women or anyone else what you should do. I, I never want to become, well, you should have. Mm -hmm. And instead of doing this, what you should have done is that I don't think that that's helpful. Mm -hmm. But I would urge all of us, everyone, to take a good hard look at this situation and how it's unfolded over the years mm -hmm. in ways that it hasn't unfolded. Mm -hmm. For example, mm -hmm. we haven't doubled down on trying to improve the climate for diverse populations on Iowa State's campus. Have we given funding to all of the programs that would help bring change about in those areas, so on and so forth? If we look at all of this from that diplomatic perspective, we'll say this can no longer stand. This has to be changed. And anyone, anyone who takes a good hard look at Iowa State is capable of that, whether you be white male, brown male, black male, white woman. Alan, thank Perfect. you so much. I, I mean, truly, thank you not only for your time today, but your activism that has had such an enormous impact 
on a campus where I have spent a lot of time and just for inspiring us. I mean, I think the the work of 929 can be so instructive to so many people who are facing issues today. And I, I'm grateful, Alan, to you and all the others who were part of that and are part of that. Wesley, I'm so grateful to you for helping to keep it going and breathe new life into it, a new generation of people. It's just really exciting. And again, whatever we can ever do, you know, we will show up for that. So don't hesitate ever to ask. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys. This thank you really so great. much for, for having us today. Thank you so much for having us today. We, we really appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast and we would certainly welcome uh, coming back again. Wonderful. We'll take you Fantastic. up on that for sure. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.